0: Good morning. Well, Sheldon, I will answer your question. Hallmark thinks that Christmas is in July. That's why I ban that station from our TV, if possible. If you have your Bibles, turn to the very last book, Revelation. Revelation. I'm doing a couple things that I, I've told uh, I've told people you shouldn't ever do when you're a guest speaker. One is uh, don't don't preach on money, and number two, don't preach from Revelation. And a month ago at another church, I preached on money, and here I am today preaching on Revelation. So I violated my own uh, my own instructions. Revelation chapter two. Let's pray together. It is a delight, Father, to be able to open your word. It is a delight to be able to be with your people. It is a delight to know that this message is not dependent upon me, but upon your Holy Spirit. You wrote it. You penned it. You preserved it. You illuminate our minds and hearts to understand it. So we pray with the psalmist that you would open our Minds today that we might see wonderful things from your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, probably about uh, eight, nine years ago, I spent three years going through the book of Revelation with our church in Cadillac. And then um, the year that I retired, the year ret- uh, for my retirement, um, the current pastor came to me and said, I'd like to preach through the book of Revelation. And we were team kind of team teaching. So he'd preach a Sunday, I'd preach a Sunday, that kind of thing. He said, I'd like to pre- go through the book of Revelation again. And so um, it was the first time for him going through. So we condensed that to a year. So I enjoy the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus gives seven. Messages to seven churches, and he identifies them in chapter one. So if you have your Bible, just flip back to chapter one, verse eleven. And Jesus says this to John: He says, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches: to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamon, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, why seven? Why those seven? Well, we could talk about a lot of reasons why. But one of the things that you need to know is that these seven churches, there were more than seven churches in Asia Minor. And Asia Minor, by the way, is today modern-day Turkey. So there were much more than seven churches. But I think that he picked these particular seven churches because they represent various spiritual conditions and characteristics of any church in any time of church history, including the present. And as you read through these messages in chapter 2 and 3 to these seven different churches, you'll find there are two basic patterns in the delivery of these seven messages. Each message begins with the same introduction to the angel of the church, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, to the angel of the church uh, at Thyatira, to the angel of the church at Sardis, and so on and so forth. And that word angel simply is the Greek word that means messenger. And in scripture, it can refer to an angelic being or it can refer to a human. I happen to believe that he is writing to the pastor of the church. He's writing to the leader of the church. So when he says the angel, he's writing it to the leader of that church. Also, each message ends with the same exhortation. It ends with, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And as you'll notice that in verse 7 of chapter 2, and you'll notice at the end of each message, I want you to notice that the word churches is plural. So when he says, he who has an ear, let him hear, he's saying, listen, pay attention to this. And he's not only telling that specific church to pay attention, but then he mentions all the churches, so a church universally. In other words, not only the church of Ephesus or the church of Pergamum or the church of Smyrna or Thyatira or Philadelphia was to get this message, but all churches in all periods of church history were to listen to the words of this message. Open up ears, pay attention to what Jesus is saying to his church. Today, I want to look at just one of those churches. I know some of you were getting a little panicked that we were going to try to get through all seven of them. We're not going to do that. We'll have everything we can do to get through this one. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, the church of Ephesus. And the outline that I've given to you is an outline you can basically use for every one of these churches. It begins with a characteristic of Christ. That characteristic comes out of a vision that John had of Christ in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. So you have a characteristic of Christ. Then secondly, you have a a commendation from Christ. Then a condemnation from Christ. Then a challenge from Christ. And then a compensation from Christ. Before we get into that, let me begin by saying a few things about the, the city and the church of Ephesus The city of Ephesus was the largest and it was the most important church in Asia Minor. Population over a quarter of a million people, over 250 million people plus. It was a free city. And what I mean by a free city, it was self-governing. It was so loyal to Rome that the Roman government felt no need to have soldiers in the city to put down any kind of rebellion because there just wouldn't be any. They were extremely loyal to Rome, so they were a free city. The city was full of cult worship. All different kinds of cult worship. But the most significant one was the worship of the goddess Artemis. So if you was a Greek, you would call that goddess Artemis. If you was a Roman, you would call that goddess Diana. So Artemis or Diana, you see that in Acts 19. And the temple of Artemis or Diana was one of the seven wonders of the world at that time. It was such a magnificent thing. Into that city came the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey around 51 or 52 A.D., and he established the church in Ephesus. We read about that in Acts chapter 19. And then later, Paul would stop back on his third missionary journey, and he would spend... Three years at that church, which was the most he had ever spent at any church, teaching them, instructing them, raising up leaders, because this was going to be a prominent church. As a matter of fact, I believe that the six other churches listed in Revelation 2 and 3 came out of the church of Ephesus. They were like church plants from the church of Ephesus. So the church of Ephesus was kind of a, a mother church. We know that later in around 61, 62, that uh, the apostle Paul wrote back to the church of Ephesus because we have the epistle the sixth chapter book of Ephesians one of uh, another special person that spent time in Ephesus was the apostle John and it is written recorded in history that the apostle John spent the last 30 years of his life in the city of Ephesus either as a pastor or one of the lead elders of that church before he was exiled to the island of Patmos whereas where where he's at right now that's where he's writing the book of Revelation from. That is the vision that he receives as an exile on the Isle, on the island of Patmos. By the time that John writes this message and receives it from Christ, the church of Ephesus has been in existence for now some 40 years. So let's look specifically this morning at the message of Christ to Ephesus and see what he wants us to learn from it for ourselves as well. Let's begin in verse 1 with a characteristic of Christ. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And you say, now what is that all about? Well, you know, what? sometimes the Bible best explains the Bible, and here we have an explanation. If you go back to verse 20 of chapter 1, we will find out who the seven stars are and who the seven lampstands are. So look at chapter 20 and verse 1, and you will see that the seven stars are the seven angels or the seven pastors of the churches, and Jesus holds them in his hand, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches, all right? So Christ here is pictured as one who is holding the stars. In other words, this, Christ is presented as the one who has sovereign control over the leaders of his church. How comforting is that? One of the things that you need to remember is again that this is Christ's church. He's the leader of it. He holds the control over the leadership of the church. It's a reminder that Jesus, not people, have control of the church. It's not your pastor's church. It's not your elder's church. It's not your deacon's church. It's not even your church. It's Christ's church. He's the leader of it. Christ is also here presented as the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, that's very interesting because if you go back to chapter 13 of verse 1, Where the vision of Jesus is presented, you'll notice that Jesus is pictured in chapter 1, verse 13, as standing in the midst of the golden lampstands. In other words, he is the center, and the churches are all around him. He's the center of it. But here, notice he's not the center. He is walking now, he is walking among the seven golden lampstands. And what that simply means is that Christ is, is reminding the church that he's not just there, he's not just in the center. But he is actually doing far more than that. He is actively protecting, actively examining, and even, if he has to, executing judgment upon his church. It's a reminder, again, to us that as individuals and as a church, we should learn to live in what is called the fear of the Lord. Are you familiar with that phrase in Scripture, the fear of the Lord? I think we think that's just an Old Testament thing. But you know what the fear of the Lord is? The fear of the Lord doesn't mean you're terrified of God. Fear of the Lord doesn't mean that you cower in fear. The fear of the Lord simply means it's the constant awareness of the presence of God. That's what the fear of the Lord is. In other words, it's a reminder that everything you do, everything you say, every place you go, every thought that you think, Jesus is there. And that's what the point is here. He's not just in the midst of the golden lampstands. He's not just in the midst of the churches. He walks among us. He sees what we think. He sees and hears what we say, how we speak. He sees and hears how we treat one another. He sees the things that we do. Every place that we go, we take him with us. He walks among the church. So that's the characteristic of Christ. Now Christ speaks. And there's a commendation that he gives to this church. Look at verse 2 and 3. He says this in verse 2, I know, that's the Greek word oida, and when he says that, it doesn't mean that he knows because he's learning something, he means that he knows because his knowledge is perfect and complete, he's omniscient, what does he know? He says, I know your works, your toil." Your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now, in those two verses, Jesus gives four commendations to this church in Ephesus. First of all, he commends them for being a serving church. Look at verse two. I know your toil and your patient endurance. The word toil there, the word kapos, means hard work to the point of sweat and exhaustion. It speaks of an all-out effort that requires everything that a person has to give. In other words, what he's saying about this church, I know that you spill it all out in ministry. I know that you give everything that you, can, that you can possibly give in serving me. You give 100% of your effort 100% of the time. This church served vigorously. They served relentlessly no matter what they faced in the ministry. And they did it, he says, with a patient endurance. I love that word, that little phrase. It comes from one Greek word, hopomene, which simply means this, cheerful endurance in face of difficulty. In other words, you just press on. You just press on. But you don't press on with an angry look on your face or disgruntled. You press on cheerfully. Nothing would get them down. Nothing would make them quick. quit. That's how our service to the Lord should be, shouldn't it? Whenever we serve Christ, we should work as hard as we can And we should work as hard as we can cheerfully. And we should work as hard as we can cheerfully for his glory. And we keep on working no matter what. We keep on serving. There's no place where we can just sit down and say, well, I don't need to do anything anymore. Jesus is saying to this church, I know that no matter whatever comes against you, you keep right on working, right on serving in my ministry for my glory. So they were a serving church. Not only that, secondly, he commends them for being a pure church. They were a pure church. Look again at verse 2, right in the middle. He says, I, I know how you cannot bear with those that are evil. That word bear means to lift and turn the head. It carries the idea of ignoring something. In other words, you see something over here, and you lift your head, and you turn it this way so you don't have to look at it. So you just basically ignore it. In other words, what he's saying is, I know that you're not a compromising church. They were uncompromising in their standards. When it came to evil, they didn't ignore it. They didn't look the other way. They didn't care if it was politically correct or not to call it out. They called sin, sin. They called evil, evil. They called right, right. They called wrong, wrong. And they did it unashamedly. And by the way, they they did it in relationship to each other. They didn't look the other way when believers in their congregation were disobedient to the Lord. They took responsibility for the behavior of one another. They understood what it meant when the Apostle Paul said in Romans 12, we are members one of another. In other words, what you do and how you live affects me. How What I do and what I say and how I live affects you because we are members one of another. They were a pure church. Thirdly, He commends them for being a discerning church. They were a discerning church. Look at verse 2 at the very end. He said, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. And that word tested just simply means to scrutinize or to prove or to examine in order to learn the nature of someone or the nature of something. And so what it's saying is this, is when somebody got up to preach, they tested the message. They wanted to see whether the message was really from God. Uh, they, they tested the life of the messenger. They didn't want to know, only know if he was saying the right things. They want to know if he was living the right way. By the way, do you know, uh, folks, that's your responsibility? I used to tell our church in Cadillac all the time, I don't care how many sermons I preach, your responsibility is to make sure that what I've told you is exactly what the Bible says. You are to go home, you're to check it out. You're not to despise preaching, but you're to test everything, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5. This was a very discerning church. Nobody came into the church of Ephesus and taught things that were ungodly and unbiblical. They were doctrinally sound. As a matter of fact, we have an example of this in verse 6. Look at verse 6, where Jesus says this, Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we're not totally sure everything that the Nicolaitans taught but obviously they are mentioned a couple times here in the messages that Jesus gives these churches so they were a false group and they found them out and they exposed them and they got rid of them they were a discerning church so they're a serving church they're a pure church, they're a discerning church Uh, 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 and then fourthly they are a persevering church, fourth commendation is they are a persevering church, look at verse 3 I know you are enduring patiently. Now it's interesting, he's already used that phrase once. Patiently enduring comes from the same word, hupomene. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. The first time that he used that word was back in verse 2, and it had to do with cheerful, uh, cheerful endurance or cheerful perseverance in the face of service, difficult service. Here, it is cheerful endurance in the face of difficult suffering. They are suffering. They're bearing up. They have to bear up. They have to endure something difficult. What is it that they have to endure? Well, here we see that they are ridiculed by the Romans. They're living in this culture where all these false gods are and the worship of Artemis, the worship of the goddess Diana, and the Romans were ridiculing them because they didn't worship their goddess and worship some God named Jesus. There was also a community of Jews that lived in Ephesus and they were being persecuted by the Jews because they believed in Jesus. And that's why Jesus says, you do this for my name's sake. They stood for Christ in the midst of evil behavior. They stood for Christ in the midst of false teaching. They stood for Christ in the midst of persecution. Persecution. This church was willing to pay whatever the price they needed to pay and make whatever sacrifice was required to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. So, wow, they're a serving church, they're a pure church, they're a discerning church, they're a persevering church. So, let me ask you a question, folks. If you were looking for a church, how many of you would choose this church? Yeah, it's a great church. I mean, it is a great church. And what's true about this church as a whole was true about them individually because remember this, no church can rise higher than the individuals who make it up. Because the church isn't the building, the church is the people, right? So this was a church with individuals who were pure and discerning and persevering and serving the Lord and that's what the church was. This was an amazing church with amazing people. A church that nobody in their right mind would not want to be a part of. As a matter of fact, they set the standard so high even for churches today in our age. But I want you to notice what Jesus continues to say about this church. A condemnation from Christ. Verse 4. Now get this. Get this. Here are all these people positives, pure, discerning, serving, persevering church, all these positives, and yet this condemnation outweighs all the commendations, look what he says in verse 4, this is Jesus talking, remember, but I have this, circle that in your Bible, I have this, that's singular, he didn't say I have these, In other words, yeah, I've got four good things to say about you, but i got 20 bad ones. No, he says, I have this against you. One thing that you have abandoned or forsaken or left, some of your versions would say. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Wow, that's it? That's the only thing. The church functions in a way that most churches don't even function today. And this is the only thing that Jesus has against them. You've abandoned the love you had at the first. Now, what did He mean by that? Well, I don't believe that he's talking here about forgetting or ignoring or neglecting or losing. It goes much deeper than that. The word abandoned comes from a Greek word, aphiomia. And that word means to send away, to willfully send away. It has to do with a deliberate action and choice that one makes. It's used 140 times in the New Testament, and 60 of those 140 times, it is translated into the English word forgive or forgiveness. Now think about that for a minute. What does God do when he forgives us? Does he just ignore our sin? Does he just forget about our sin? Does he just overlook our sin? No, when God forgives our sin, he deliberately and volitionally chooses to send our sin away from us and remember it no more. Isn't that right? That's what forgiveness is. That's the strength of this word. And notice what Jesus says they had abandoned. They had abandoned the love they had at the first That word first, protos, means the chief, the best, the most important. What does he mean that they had abandoned their love that they had at the first? I think it relates to what Jesus said when a ruler of the the Jewish people come up to him one day and they said, he said, Lord, I have a question for you. Which is the greatest commandment? I mean, there's only 700 and some commandments in the Old Testament. So which is the greatest commandment? And what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, 38? He said, you shall love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Verse 38, this is the great and first protos commandment. Same word that was used in verse 4 in Revelation 2. Foremost in time, foremost in place, foremost in order of importance. It's that which is the most essential. It's the priority. Now let me apply this to the church at Ephesus. It's not that these people had stopped loving, okay? Understand that. It's not that they were a loveless people. It's not that they became a, a hateful people. It was the priority, hear me now, it was the priority of who and what they loved. You see, they, they still loved their church. They loved the ministry. They loved the activities. They loved the truth. They loved the sound doctrine. They loved the Bible studies. They loved the getting together. But somewhere along the line, they had continued to love those things and stopped loving the Lord Jesus Christ. They had abandoned the passion and the fervency that once characterized their service for Christ. I'm not saying they had departed from completely from loving God, it was that their love had no longer had any fervency to it. It had no depth of meaning as it, as it did at the beginning. It wasn't their priority anymore. They did ministry because it was just there to do. Their love had left their heart and it was only in their head. And how important is that to Jesus? Jesus. How important it is to him that we don't abandon our love for him, that we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is seen in the challenge that he gives in verse 5. Look at the challenge by Christ. Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not... In other words, if not, if you choose not to do this, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place and thus you repent. Now Jesus here gives three challenges to the church of Ephesus and they're challenges for us as well. Number one, he says this, they needed to remember. They needed to remember. Remember therefore from where you are falling. Paul said to Timothy, you know, that I was reading last month, I was reading through the book of Timothy every day. 1 Timothy and it come to chapter 2. Uh, 2 Timothy, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. And Paul says to Timothy this Remember Jesus Christ. I stopped and thought about that. I thought, well, who wouldn't remember Jesus Christ? Then I got thinking about how often throughout the day do I remember Jesus Christ? Remember Jesus Christ. You know, forgetfulness, my friend, is always the first stage of spiritual decline. When you forget to spend time with the Lord, when you forget to be in his word, when you forget to pray, when you forget about all the things that he's done for you, when you forget about how great salvation is, when you forget about how terrible sin is that we constantly forget, you know, in the book of Deuteronomy, very interesting book of Deuteronomy called the second law is that God mentions in there the word do not forget or remember over and over and over. He says to the Israelites, do not forget, do not forget, do not forget, remember, remember, remember. Why? Why does God do that? Because he knows us. And we tend to forget. And we tend to not remember. And so here's Jesus, he comes to this church and he says, listen, I want you to remember, you need to remember. So you got to go back and you've got you to rethink about what your relationship with Christ is and all the things that Jesus has done for you and, and what it means to love him with all of your heart. And then when you remember, there's going to be some conviction that comes and then he says this, secondly, they needed to repent. That's the second thing they needed to do. They needed to repent. They need to turn away from the position where they were in and go in a different direction. You say, well, what they need to repent for... Well, abandoning our love for Jesus Christ is not just an oversight. It is a deadly sin. It is a deadly sin to which we must repent. And then thirdly, he says this. They need to redo the first works. So they need to remember, they need to repent, and now they've got to redo the first works. Verse 5, do the works you did at the first Because doing the works you did at the first is the evidence that you've generally repented. And generally repented is the evidence that you've now remembered. To do the works you did at the first is not a reference to doing things for Christ. They were already doing things for Christ. Matter of fact, he had already given them four commendations for the things that they were doing for Christ. Doing the works you did at the first is a reference to the things they had abandoned. And what they had abandoned was their love for Christ, the fervency and passion with which they served him. Let everything that we do come from a fervent, passionate love for me. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not telling them to stop doing the things or he wouldn't have commended them for doing them. He's telling them to get their priority right. Do those things out of passionate love for me. Listen, church, what a great, great message for us. Do you serve today in ministry? I don't care what ministry. I don't care if it's a nursery. I don't care if it's music. I don't care if it's a teacher. I don't care if it's leadership. I, I don't care what ministry you serve in in the church. Do you serve in the ministry you serve in because of your love and your passion for Jesus or because they simply need bodies? Or because it's just something you've always done or something you like to do? I don't care what it is. I don't care however small and seemingly insignificant your ministry is or how, how large and visible and out front it is. It's not what you do, but it's why you do it and who you do it for. Do you understand that? That's where you get your motivation from. See, I think people burn out not because ministries have gone cold. I think people burn out because their passion and love for Jesus has gone cold. They've kind of let that fire go out in their life. And notice what happens. Listen. This is so important. Notice what happens if you ignore this challenge. If you don't remember and you don't repent, you don't do the first works when you began at the beginning in loving Jesus, look at what happens at the end of verse 5, if not, Jesus says, if not, in other words, if you don't repent and you don't remember and you don't redo, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That is a warning, church, not just to Ephesus, that is a warning to churches of all ages, including this one. This is something that we must constantly, constantly guard against. You say, well, what does it mean uh, to have your lampstand removed? To remove their lampstand was to remove their witness and testimony for Christ where they were. It was to make their ministry totally ineffective. Oh, they continue to exist. Oh, they continue to meet on Sundays. Praise team would keep singing. The preacher would keep preaching. They'd still have Sunday school. They'd probably even do prayer and Wednesday in the middle of the week. Uh, they'd have VBS. They'd have all the ministries. They'd, they'd keep functioning for a time. Uh, they'd keep existing organizationally. But something of, of their life and their effectiveness would be gone. And eventually, over time, so might they. That's exactly, by the way, what happened to the church of Ephesus. Ephesus. I don't know whether Ephesus listened to this message or not. I don't know whether they did remember and repent and redo, but it wasn't long before there was no church in Ephesus. It was gone. And exactly what happened to that church has happened to many churches. In his commentary on Revelation, John Phillips says this about the church of Ephesus. He said, the furnace was still there, but the fire had gone out. Just because you see a building setting and just because you see a lot of cars in the parking lot and just because you see uh, a, a large group of people in the church doesn't mean that there's effective fruit taking place there. They may just be meeting. And by the way, not only does that happen to churches, it happens to individuals because remember the church is made up of individuals, Right? So the only way for the church to get that way is for you and I as individuals to get that way. How many Christians do you know who have abandoned the love they had at the first? And now they just go through the motions of serving Christ. No passion, no power. No, no demonstration of the Holy Spirit's working. They, they love their church. Listen, can it be said of you? You love your church. You love your ministries. You love the activities. You've loved the Bible. You love the doctrine. You love the truth. You love the music. You love all the things that's going on here, but basically you're just involved in time-consuming busyness. You're just going through the motions because there's nothing, there's no fervency there anymore for Christ. I might even be so bold to just say to you, to challenge you this morning, I think some there, there could be some of you sitting here who showed up this morning because that's simply all you've done for the last 30 years. What else do you do on Sunday morning? You just show up, show up. Now notice finally a compensation from Christ, verse seven. And he comes with that familiar exhortation that he ends every message with, he who has an ear, Let him hear, that implies, look, you can have have ears, but it doesn't mean you're listening, all right? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And here's the compensation, to the one who conquers. Circle that word in your Bible. Some of your versions may have overcome. To the one who conquers or overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now, who's the compensation for? It's for the one who conquers. It's for the one who overcomes. Well, the one who conquers does not refer to a special class of believers. You know, like the super saints, the super Christians. It refers to all true believers, that word conquers is a Greek word, nikao, N-I-K-A-O, and it means to overcome, to prevail, to be victorious. Let me read you something. I'm not going to have you turn there, but I think it'll be up on the screen up here. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 through 5 up here. Look at this now. For everyone, this is what John, John wrote Revelation, and about 10 years before this, he wrote 1 John. And so here's what he says. For everyone who has been born of God. Let me ask you a question. Raise your hand. How many of you here have been born of God? Okay, that's good. So this verse applies to you. For everyone who has been born of God, what? Overcomes. But it's the word nikaal. So you can put the word conquer in there too. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes or conquers the world. And this is the victory that has overcome Nikael, the world, our faith. Verse 5, who is it that overcomes Nikael? the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Have you received him in your life as your Lord and Savior? Hey, the good news is you are the overcomers. You're the conquerors. You're the one who gets the compensation here, all right? And that compensation is that you can eat of the tree of life. Now, all that means is this. It's just the promise of eternal life. That's what the tree of life was. Matter of fact, that's why God took the tree of life and guarded it. Because if Adam and Eve would have eaten fruit out of the tree of life after they sinned, they would have stayed in an eternal state of sinfulness, never ever to be redeemed. Because the tree of life will give you eternal life. And so that tree of life has been guarded, and someday we read in Revelation 22, it's going to reappear again, all right? I can't wait to taste the fruit from that tree. It's in the paradise, notice the tree of life is in the paradise of God, which refers right now to heaven itself. Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 and 3, that he was caught up to the third heaven, which is Paradise. So that's where this tree of life is. But in the end, it'll be on the new earth in the new Jerusalem, where all believers will be. Now let me close this morning with a couple of questions for you. And you see them on your outline. Two questions. How do you know if you've abandoned the love you had for Jesus? And secondly, how do you regain the first love for Jesus? So let's look at the first question first. How do you know if you've abandoned the love you had for Jesus? Let me give you just a couple thoughts, and you see them there in your outline. Two thoughts here. But something I want you to go home and ponder. If enjoying God's gifts, and by the way, we all enjoy God's gifts, don't we? If enjoying God's gifts is more important than enjoying the one who gave those gifts, you are in danger of abandoning your first love. If enjoying those gifts that God has given to you is more important than enjoying the one who gave the gifts, God himself, you're in danger of abandoning your first love. Secondly, if doing things for Jesus, that's what the church of Ephesus was doing, weren't they? They were doing things for Jesus. Jesus commends them for that. If doing things for Jesus has become more important than spending time with Jesus, you are in danger of abandoning your love for him. In other words, if you're spending more time serving Jesus than you are sitting with Jesus... You are in danger of abandoning your love for him. And you know, we have a tremendous example of this. To answer the second question, how do we regain the first love for Jesus? We have an example of this in Luke chapter 10. And if you want to turn there, you can. But it'll be up here. Luke chapter 10, Jesus went to visit some friends of his. The friends were Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. Now listen to this, Luke chapter 10. He said, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Underline that. She sat at the Lord's feet listening to his teaching. But Martha, verse 40, was distracted with much what? Serving. Now serving's a good thing, but notice she was distracted with it. So she comes up to Jesus and she says, Lord, do you not care? Now you you can tell how distracted she was. Who in the world would ever come up to the most caring, loving person, the Son of God, and say, don't you care? Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you know, whenever Jesus said something twice, he really wants you to pay attention. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one. Thing is necessary. Please mark that. One thing is necessary. One thing is essential. One thing is the priority. Martha, what is that? Mary has chosen. See, you have to choose that. You have to choose the priority. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Here's Martha. She's serving Jesus. She was doing things for Jesus. But that phrase, Martha, you're distracted. You're being dragged away. You're being overwhelmed with all these things you're trying to do for me. She's not distracted from what she was doing. She was being distracted from whom she needed to be paying attention to. And that's why Jesus said in verse 42, one thing is necessary, one thing is needful, one thing is essential. Listen, my friend we are always in danger of crowding out the essential with the important. Do you understand that? I'm going to tell you right now, there is nothing that goes on at this church that is not important. Everything that goes on at this church is important. But it may not be the most essential. The most essential thing is learning how to spend time with Jesus. See, it wasn't that the things that Martha was doing wasn't important. It wasn't that the things that the church of Ephesus was doing that weren't important, because if they weren't important, Jesus wouldn't have commended them for them. It was the issue that the important had crowded out the essential. And I think we have to do a check in our own lives constantly. Is the important crowding out the essential? Are we trying to prove to God how much we love him by all the things that we're doing for him or because we just love to be in his presence and spend time with him? And Jesus said, Mary has chosen the good portion. What was that? She's just sitting at Jesus' feet, just soaking it in, just soaking it in. Martha also had made a choice, the wrong one. It wasn't that Martha's choice wasn't important. It's just that Mary's choice was essential. It was the priority. Spend time with Jesus. Now I want to add something here, real quick. Give me two minutes. It's not on your outline. Uh, I I, I thought about this at first. I wasn't going to do it, and then I won out. I want you to turn to John fourteen. It won't be on the PowerPoint. I already told the guys back there. It's not on the PowerPoint. I want you to turn to John 14. And I want you to see something. We have the example of what it means to regain your first love from Mary and Martha, okay? But now I want you to see the instruction of how to do it. I want you to see the instruction that Jesus gives. So bear with me here. I know we're out of time. I'm hoping I get to preach when I get to heaven because I won't have to worry about Time. All right, John chapter 4. This is Jesus the night before he's betrayed, night, or excuse me, night before he's crucified. And I want you to notice he's with his disciples for the last time and he says something to them three times. Three times. Begin at verse 15 of John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Drop down to verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself or disclose myself or make myself real to that person. Drop down two more verses, verse 23. Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love Him, and we will come to Him and make our home with Him. Did you get it? Did you get it? Keep, 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 commandments, commandments, word, love, 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 three times. Loving Christ, which is the priority, is obeying. The greatest way you learn to love Christ and rekindle love for Christ and experience the love of Christ is by obedience to His commands. And where do you find Christ's commands? Tell me, church, where do you find Christ's commands? You find them in the Word. You find them in the Bible. If you want to love Christ, you obey His commands. If you want to obey His commands, you spend time in God's Word and you allow the Word to spend time in you. Colossians 3 13, Paul says, Let the word of, 316, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, listen, you can have God's word and not keep his commands, but you can't keep his commands if you don't have his word. And if you don't have his word and you don't keep his commands, you don't experience his love and you don't grow in years for him. Do you get that? Are you in danger? of abandoning your love for Christ as an individual, as a church body, are the important things, crowding out the essential things, the priority, the spending time with the love of your life, Jesus? If so, remember, repent, and redo. Right? Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is food for our soul. It just seems like there's never enough time to get all of it. But we thank you for what you've given us today in this message that you gave to your church in Ephesus and this message that you gave through that church and that message to this church at East Bay, that, Father, we would not allow the important to crowd out the essential, that we would learn what it means to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind that we would spend time with you in your word, and more importantly, we'd let your word spend a lot of time in us. For your glory and for our good, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You can stand. I was gonna have you stand and pray and forgot to have you stand, so stand now. And now shake somebody's hand and tell them it was good to see them, and God bless you.